Hmm, this feels like I'm far away from you folks. You know, that song, uh, I just have to say, well done, everybody. That's a Tommy Walker song that I've heard on CD a bunch of times and thought, boy, I wonder if any congregation out there is singing this. And lo and behold, there is. You guys did great. Um, whoever's got this mic, it's over here, okay? So I'm going to use your music stand. And I'll try not to take the music down with me when I'm finished with my sermon. Um, tonight we're going to spend a little bit of time on, uh, on God's providence, thinking about the ways that God provides for us. And it's just a nice connection between Thanksgiving when we're celebrating the providence of God and Advent when we're celebrating a particular gift that is in the providence of God, the gift of His Son, Jesus. And to help us with that, we're going to turn together to Genesis chapter 6, and I invite you to do that, um, but with the awareness that we're not going to get to the text for a little while. So just have it handy, and, uh, and we'll get there in, uh, in just a little bit. But first, just want to ask if anybody knows what a soliloquy is. What is a soliloquy? Anybody out there know what a soliloquy is? I'm sorry? A what? Google it. <laughs> Let's just pretend this is not the days of Google, okay? We're going we're gonna to go with what you brought to the table today. A review? Um, not quite. You're getting there. Like a syllabus? Um, not quite, but you're getting there. <laughs> yes, not a word we use very often at all, at all. An explanation? Kinda. A long speech. Now you're getting warmer. Now you're getting warmer. A long speech. I'm sorry? To oneself. Now we're getting really hot. Yes, well done. So a soliloquy is a speech that a character plays on stage, maybe on the television show, whatever, but to him or herself not to anybody else that's on the stage. It's like uh, that person is speaking to no one in particular. Kind of like, it almost sounds like a waste of breath, doesn't it? A soliloquy is a speech you're saying kind of to, to the air and to your heart. Um, I, I actually speak a lot of soliloquies. Like when, when I'm behind a slow driver, I tend to soliloquize a little bit. Like, or when, my, when I'm texting and my fat thumbs hit the wrong letter time and time again, I, I soliloquize. <laughs> Stupid phone. I need a new phone. Stupid phone. That's my soliloquy. Or when the, pass, uh, when the receiver doesn't quite catch the pass that's intended, that could be taken in for a touchdown. Not like the game yesterday, by the way, right? Um, but maybe like the Lions, um, which was Thursday totally forgettable. Um, soliloquy. Maybe you've heard of, uh, let's see here, uh, Hamlet's soliloquy. Let me see if I can start this off and you finish it. To be or not to be, that is the, hey, well done. You have heard of, you have heard of soliloquies. I, uh, I mentioned that a soliloquy is, is a, a speech that's offered to nobody else and nobody really hears um, the soliloquy, but I I'm not sure that's exactly right, everybody. A soliloquy is intended for um, not just for the speaker's own soul, 
and not just for the thin air out there, but who does hear the soliloquy? Well, let's not go there just yet. (laughs) Good answer. But who at a play, and let's say it's a high school play, and and they're doing Macbeth, and Macbeth's up up here talking about being and not being and all the rest, and who else, who's hearing this? The audience is hearing this, exactly. And there are those who say that when uh, a playwright writes a soliloquy into the text, the playwright wants the audience to hear what the character on stage is thinking in the depths of his or her heart. A soliloquy reveals what's going on inside in a way that regular speech maybe doesn't. That's a soliloquy. It's a speech spoken to maybe to thin air, um, but it reveals what's going on inside, and the audience happens to hear. Okay. Now, in the very first story in Scripture, the story of creation, we hear several God soliloquies. He actually says uh, the same soliloquy a number of times. It begins with, let us make, that's the same part, again and again and again. But then the, the, diff- the part that's different is what he follows that up with. Let us make you know, the land and the sky and let's make, the, let's make man in our image and that sort of thing. But those are soliloquies. And after each one of those soliloquies, we hear the narrator of Genesis tell us what God actually made, and then we hear the narrator tell us that God saw all that, it was, all that he had made, and behold, it was very good. These are happy soliloquies on God's part. Let us make. And you get to hear what God has in his heart that he wants to make as part of his creation. A little bit later in Genesis, Genesis chapter 6, we hear another soliloquy. It's quite short. Uh, But God is now watching all the evil and the cruelty that's committed by the human beings that he's made, that are in his image, and they've inherited the disease of sin, which we read about in chapter 3. And as he's weeping over his broken creation, he speaks another soliloquy. This time it's a very sad soliloquy. But it reveals what's in his heart, right? That's what a soliloquy does, reveals what's in the speaker's heart. This is what he says, I will wipe from the face of the earth the human race I've created And with them, the animals, the birds, and the creatures that move along the ground, for I regret that I have made them. And you can hear the pain in God's heart as he's seeing his creation that he made back in chapters 1 and 2, that he saw fall into sin in chapter 3, express the disease of sin in so many ugly ways in chapter 6. In our text... Uh, we have yet another God soliloquy. It's in verse 21, after God has smelled something very good. It's a very joyful soliloquy. Uh, God is very pleased. He makes a wonderful promise. But before we read and hear about that soliloquy, let's just reflect for a minute on the story that lies behind this one. It's a well-known story. It's the story of, any guesses? The flood, the story of Noah. It's the longest story in Genesis. Genesis. The story of the flood, it begins with the soliloquy that we've already heard back in chapter 6, the one that God made when he saw that all of humankind had become evil and corrupt, was committing all kinds of sins against him and against one another. God saw versions of what you and I see on the news every day these days, wars that are doing so much damage to people that bear God's image. Um, People assuming that their lives are theirs to own and theirs to run, 
and they make all kinds of poor decisions that come to nothing and to harm others. God sees these kind of contemporary stories way back then already. And out of sadness and regret, he makes plans to wipe out humankind and every living creature, except for the one righteous man named Noah and Noah's family and seven pairs of every clean animal and one pair of every unclean animal. He's going to rescue these particular things, a little microcosm of creation, put them all on the ark, send a flood, and cleanse the earth that had become so filthy. In pursuit of that plan, God commands Noah to build an ark, and he does. It's a mammoth building, mammoth boat. He then commands Noah to place the animals on the ark, follow them in, and Noah does. It's an amazing parade. He shuts the ark himself and then tears open the heavens so rain pours down upon the ark and all that's on the earth and kills everything in its path. And that's exactly what happens. In the 17th day of the second month of Noah's 600th year, this is an old man, 600th year and the kind of chaos and instability that had existed before the, the creation of the world, the tohu vabohu is how the Hebrew puts it. It's an amazing phrase. Formlessness, emptiness, that returns now as the waters cover the earth. Only a microcosm, as I said, only a microcosm of creation is saved. Everybody on the boat, those animals, Noah and his family. And then the rain stops, the waters dry up. By the 27th day of the second month of Noah's 601st year, 14 months later, the earth is completely dry again, and God calls Noah to come out of the ark and bring all the animals with him. Noah does, makes an offering of thanksgiving to the Lord, and between the pleasing aroma of the sacrifice that Noah offers to him and the aromas of everything that's now growing again around the world, God's heart is made glad. His heart is made glad. And this is where we come to our text, Genesis chapter 8, verse 13. By the first day of the first month of Noah's 601st year, the water had dried up from the earth. Noah then removed the covering from the ark and saw that the surface of the ground was dry. By the 27th day of the second month, the earth was completely dry. And then God said to Noah, come out of the ark, you and your wife and your sons and their wives, and bring out every kind of living creature that's with you, the birds and the animals and all the creatures that move along the ground so they can multiply on the earth and be fruitful and increase in number on it. It's like God starting again. Those are words that, we, that echo chapter 1, the first creation. Verse 18, so Noah came out together with his sons and his wife and his sons' wives and all the animals and all the creatures that move along the ground and all the birds, every, everything that moves on land came out of the ark one kind after another. And then Noah built an altar to the Lord, and taking some of the clean animals and clean birds, he sacrificed burnt offerings on it. The Lord smelled the pleasing aroma and said in his heart, here's the soliloquy, never again will I curse the ground because of humans, even though every inclination of the human heart is evil from childhood, and never again will I destroy all living creatures as I have done, as long as earth endures Seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night will never cease. God's soliloquy. 
And what did we say again about soliloquies? They're spoken by the person on stage, so to speak, right? They're spoken kind of out there to whoever might be listening in the audience. Turns out the audience for this text is us today. But soliloquies do something, remember? What, it, what is it that soliloquies express again? What do soliloquies give voice to? Yes, the internal feelings, the deepest kind of feelings and longings and desires of the heart of the person speaking the soliloquy. What we read here in our text is God's heart speaking. Never again will I do this. Never again will I bring such waters upon the earth to destroy the earth in this way. Never again will I do this. And so from here on out, there will be seed time and harvest and cold and heat and summer and winter and day and night and these things will never cease. You know, autumn came around this year again. And it was beautiful. And then winter came for about two weeks and now it's autumn again. <laughs> But winter will come yet again, and it will last a little longer than two weeks. And then after that is spring, and after that is summer. And it's so regular that we don't even think about it. But God makes clear in this text that these things don't happen just by chance. They happen by his good hand. By his good hand. Last month, I rode around in my wife's cousin's field combine in Iowa. We were taking in the corn harvest. Anybody else rode in a combine? Bob Timmer, I knew you would say yes. <laughs> a combine is a, an amazing machine. It cuts the corn down, strips the corn of the cobs, strips the kernels off the cobs, throws them in a hopper, and sends everything else out the back. It's a combination of some incredible action. That's why it's called a combine harvest. And, and it didn't just happen by chance. And it didn't just happen by human ingenuity, putting this great big John Deere combine together. It happened be because God had a hand in this, just like he will have a hand next spring in seed time. And then again in harvest, and then again in seed time, and then again in harvest, and seed time, and harvest, and they'll never end. Every year, these things will happen. This morning, I got up to a new day. Again, after I had slept through a night, again, day and night and day and night, and I forget that I do this every day because God makes it so. Did you know that the Jews, at least back in the day, in Scripture's time, began their days in the evening? What is the thing that you most commonly do in the evening? What will you all do in four hours or so? You'll go to bed. That's when the Jewish day begins. When does the Jewish day begin in our culture? When does the day, I should say, begin in our culture? In the morning, when we get busy. 
in the Jews' conception of the world, the day begins by all of us human beings going unconscious <laughs> and God continuing his work because God always continues his work and it's not dependent upon us for God to do his good work. It's a way, uh, the Jews had a way of remembering, in other words, every single day, every single evening, that God is in charge and that nothing happens without him. And God is absolutely faithful, just as he promised in, well, in this soliloquy from Genesis chapter 8. Back to the story of the flood for a moment and God's joyful soliloquy as humanity gets its fresh start. Don't you wish that um, the next chapter, chapter 9 and then 10 and 11 and the next books, Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers and so on, don't you wish that um, the rest of the story was a story of, of humanity now having been cleansed, moving on to godliness? And uh, of humanity not, in other words, going back to its old idolatries and immoralities, no longer tempted to take something of creation and fashion an idol out of it and bow before it, always now eager and ready to please God in everything that humanity does and says and thinks, every relationship going smoothly, every uh, moment, a moment of worship before God. Don't you wish that that's how scriptures then went on from Genesis chapter 8? <laughs> Do they? <sighs> no. We have the story of Babel and humanity trying to be like God. We have the story of Abram not quite ready to put his faith in God, instead trusting in his own skillfulness and ingenuity. And as he makes his way to Egypt, saying to Sarai, his wife, Sarai, how about you pretend to be um, my sister? That's it, my sister. That way Pharaoh won't be so eager to knock me off in order to get at you. Oh, I wish that Abram had been a man of faith instead. And then there's the story of Sodom and Gomorrah where God can't even find just a handful of people in these two cities who are righteous and for whom he would save the two towns. And then we go on from there into the stories of Israel and their continual cycle of disobedience, cycle after cycle after cycle of God, for Israel forgetting God and God rescuing them and then Israel forgetting God and God rescuing them from their enemies and you know how the story goes. The Bible does not tell us a story of the world now having been cleansed, living its cleansing. And no, as I said before, people make wars on, on others and they insist on their own way and they pretend that they are the lords of their lives. Both scripture and history show us plenty of reason for God to again regret creating humanity. Regret giving humanity the fresh start that he gives in the story of the flood and the amazing thing is that God doesn't send another flood when there's plenty of reason for him to do that. The amazing gift is that there is never again another flood, that the earth is never again destroyed by water, the animals and the people are never again put to death because of what God promises in this soliloquy. He is faithfully, consistently, amazingly providential. And in spite of Sodom and Gomorrah, in spite of the Tower of Babel, in spite of Abram's 
faithlessness in spite of Israel's faithlessness, in spite of our faithlessness. There continues to be seed time and harvest, summer and winter, heat and cold. Providence. Let's hear a 450-year-old definition of God's providence. This is the 27th answer to the Heidelberg Catechism's question. And it puts so nicely what we can count on from God, his perfect faithfulness in spite of human sin. Providence, we read, is the almighty and ever-present power of God by which he upholds as with his hand heaven and earth and all creatures and so rules them that leaf and blade, rain and drought, fruitful and lean years, food and drink. You can hear the echo of Genesis 8, God's soliloquies going back and forth. Health and sickness, prosperity and poverty, all things in fact come to us not by chance, but from his fatherly hand. In spite of human sin. I want to take you to another soliloquy now. It's a very, very short one. It's in John chapter 19, verse 30. This is also a God soliloquy spoken by Jesus, whose birth we will celebrate in just a few weeks. And um, there's a story here too, as you might expect. It's a story of God's mission to bring a fresh start to his broken creation. This time, not merely through a flood, because we've learned that a flood doesn't quite work. This time through a, a son of his. And a death of this son. And God offers his life as a payment for all the disease and rebellion and sickness and hatred that happened before and during and after the flood, just like we heard about in the Canons of Dort quotation. This is why uh, God can make the promise that he made in our text, in Genesis 8, because he knows that this is what's coming, the death of his son. Listen to this soliloquy of Jesus. He speaks it on the cross as the Father has turned away. And I'll say the first two words and invite you to say with me the third. Okay? It is finished. Yeah. It is finished. This providence of God, this fresh start, finishes forever the power of sin to condemn and break us, to separate us from God, to close off the way to newness with Him. And it's interesting, this um, this providence of God comes with some reminders as well. Uh, not seed time and harvest, like the one that we read about in our text, not summer and winter or heat and cold, but the bread and the cup are reminders of this expression of God's providence. Each time we eat the bread and drink the cup, we remember Jesus' death until he comes. And we're remembering that God has been faithful to all of his promises. The one that we hear in the soliloquy in Genesis chapter 8, the one that we hear back in Genesis chapter 3, he will crush the serpent's head. And each time we bring this cup and drink uh, and bread to our lips, we give thanks. And each time we move into a new season or experience hot and cold or go through seed time and harvest, we can give thanks. I turned the shower on this morning with this sermon in mind. I turned, it to, I turned the hot and the cold, got it just right. 
And um, it was an opportunity for me to thank God. Genesis 8 came to mind. And not only has God not sent another flood, and not only has he sent seed time and harvest, and cold and heat, and summer and winter, and day and night, he has also sent a way for the whole world to be made new again. Speaking of that, let's listen to one more soliloquy, this time in Revelation, the very last book of the Bible. Revelation chapter 21, verse 5. One of God's last soliloquies in the scriptures. We first hear a loud voice in heaven that says, look, or if you're in love with the King James Version, Behold, right? God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God, and he will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. Finally. And then he who is seated on the throne speaks one of the last soliloquies in Scripture. He says, I am making everything new. Yes, new. I love God's soliloquies. And I love what they reveal about what is in his Would you pray with me? Father God, thank you for your words. The words that you allowed the authors of Scripture to capture so that we might hear them too. And we've heard them tonight and we've heard your heart. We've heard your heart as we've heard the promise of Genesis 8, the words of Jesus in John 21, and your words of concluding blessing and promise and grace in Revelation. We have heard your heart, and it makes our hearts glad. Thank you for the peace that passes all understanding that comes when we hear your words. Thank you for the joy that rises above our circumstance that comes when we hear your words. Thank you for the hope that rises within our hearts when we hear your words, the words of your heart. As we begin the work week tomorrow morning, remind us of your words and of what they reveal of your heart, your love, and your grace. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.